Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined, as usual, by former Democratic U.S. congressman coming at us from the left, Paul Hodes, and conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant, Alicia Preston. Paul, our most recent episode of Beyond Politics was kind of a blockbuster, and we missed you as I kind of disclaimered on air as we were recording it. You were the subject, you were the focal point of some kind of an electrical cloud burst. You had utility issues, you had power issues, you couldn't join the show. What a shame, because it really opened a window into the world going on in, among your former colleagues during the two Trump impeachments. Today, as we record this, October 18th, a new book called Unchecked, The Botched Impeachments of Donald Trump is out. And we had the two authors of that book on the show yesterday. I know you were kind of reading through what we found, what we talked about. What stood out to you? What 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 do you think was sort of like the, the biggest take home for you from that discussion? Well, there were there were there were two things that were kind of bombshells in a way for me, um, almost as big bombshells as the four utility poles that came crashing down uh, around us with the wires spritzing on the streets. But putting putting all that aside, um, one was the uh, effort that that was made to push Pelosi into calling uh, for the hearing, number one. And number two, on the second impeachment hearing, when we were all wondering, why are there no witnesses? Why aren't they calling witnesses? Where are the witnesses? We need witnesses. There've got to be people to talk about what happened. Well, it turns out there would have been witnesses, but for a simple twist of the kind of fate that sometimes makes history go completely off the rails in one direction instead of the other. There was a witness available who was basically trying to call the committee to say, hey, I'm ready to testify. The message never got to the committee. So, I mean, but for, um, who knows? And I guess the third bombshell is the discussion in the interview about the possibilities that various Republicans at various times during the various impeachments might have voted uh, to convict, um, but for um, uh, a few errant communications. Mm. And uh, I, I agree. I mean, obviously, I, I had the privilege of being part of it. I think that second one you mentioned was was really mind bending to me. It was a fascinating story. I urge people to check it out. It's in uh, podcast feed. By the way, we're always looking for subscribers and ratings and reviews. We really do appreciate it because we want more people to discover the show and we want people to check out this book. It's just, it's so fascinating that there was Jamie Herrera Butler, the Washington representative Republican was ready to come forward. She was the one who overheard and, and talked to Kevin McCarthy about his phone call with Donald Trump, the infamous phone call he had, and she was ready. But there's this fascinating episode where Jamie Raskin, our other recent guest a couple of weeks ago, was desperately trying to call her during during this window and say, hey, come testify. And she's on the West Coast. So it's 7 a.m. Saturday morning. She calls Nancy Pelosi, the House counsel who works for Nancy Pelosi, but he is the lawyer for the House and says, OK, can you can you? walk me through this. I just want to figure this out because I have to take on 
my whole political party. So just help me figure this out. And he's like, I, I can't advise you. Not only does he say, I can't advise you inexplicably, he never tells anybody that he got the phone call and that maybe you should call Representative Herrera Butler up and see what she's willing to do. That that missed phone call just never connects. We never get that piece of evidence. And I would just connect that point to the other reporting. We didn't have time to get into it in the interview, but they've shown, I think, pretty conclusively in the book that Mitch McConnell was much closer to being swayed to vote for conviction than has been previously reported. And he was a major domino. Republican senators who were a little on the fence were looking to him to see which way the leadership was going to go, to give them cover if they decided to sway. We were closer to convicting Donald Trump barring him from holding future office and the impending nightmare we're probably facing in 2024 than I think any of us ever realized. And one of the key ingredients that was missing was that testimony. And so it's just this, this, this connection of events that could have gone a different way. And we'd be dealing with very different American history. Alicia, you didn't get to be part of that particular discussion, but anything stand out to you from from our conversation here or from from what you heard on the pod? Other than the grand revelation that Congress is incompetent? No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I'm not going to stand up and defend Congress because why defend the indefensible? But I will say that this was another thing that came across to me is there's a real fog of war aspect to all of their storytelling in the book that, you know, no matter how competent you can be, and Jamie Raskin is an extremely intelligent and accomplished constitutional lawyer who knows how to prosecute a case like this. He is literally sort of one of the best people in America you could have had on scene to do this, but no one's omnipotent. The the, the story of the two impeachments is that they're filled with human errors and mistakes and cross signals and hurt feelings. And, you know, well, you wouldn't let me into the secure compartmentalized intelligence briefing room. And so now I'm offended. I feel like you're hiding the ball on me. So I'm not going to vote for your impeachment. So like there's all kinds of stuff like that. I can attest from personal experience about the, the high school aspect of being in Congress. It's, it's, you know, there are cliques, there are petty jealousies, there are power grabs, there are perceptions, there is maneuvering every day, all day, at every level for incremental, the hope of some incremental advancement of an agenda which you might not even know you have, but somebody thinks you have. In other words, it's a lot like being in high school um, and it's it's people, people, it's people, you know how people are, people are like this. Oh, I thought you were doing Soylent Green. I thought you were suggesting that we eat members. No, of we're not going to eat. Not a bad of, idea. No, we're not eating our members of Congress. Uh, although, could, Mar- no. although Marjorie Taylor Green, I, 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 I can't I can't say that as to Marjorie Taylor Green. But anyway. well, look, Alicia Preston would have us believe that the price of beef is so high that we may need to resort to that. That's she's been very on message on this point. And I know we're going to hit on inflation later in the show. So <laughs> let me just lob that up for you, Alicia. If you would like to uh, uh, alley my oop there, um, 
you know, you I'm could suggest. I'm not saying we want to replace it with that. I'm just pointing out that my beef stew is now chicken stew. And soon it might be Marjorie Taylor Greene stew. Okay. And it could I, be Marjorie Taylor Greene stew. It could be. It I could wouldn't be. do that to my family. Not because it's human, but because it's Marjorie Taylor Greene. All right. We somehow have gotten onto cannibalism. <laughs> uh, the one final thing I'll say, speaking of um, Republicans of, of a somewhat odious nature, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about our mutual admiration and recognition of the role that Mike Pence played in preventing an utter meltdown of American democracy. And this was another thing that just came out in that episode in Beyond Politics. The the, the authors take us behind the scenes and they uncover in their reporting that, sure, yes, we should be praising Mike Pence for that. And we should be praising the 10 Republican House members who voted to impeach in the second impeachment. But Mike Pence could have done a lot more to finish the job. And in fact, he he stiff armed the efforts to get his staff and or to get himself to testify. He could have shed a lot more light in the moment if he had had the chutzpah, if he'd had the backbone to stand up and say what he had seen in the moment during the impeachment trial we again could be in a very, very different course and that, of American history right now. Ditto for those 10 members, several of whom had seen, had witnessed and heard about that call with Kevin McCarthy. And they lied to Jamie Raskin and said that they hadn't when he called them and asked, would you please testify? And they all chickened out. And so Anyway, that's that's not not, how surprising is that? Look, ultimately, as Will Rogers said, I don't belong to uh, I, you know, I don't I'm a Democrat. I don't belong to an organized party. And um, conversely, Republicans, if nothing else, are loyal. They get in line. They don't buck their leadership. We've seen that over and over and over again. They are not cats waiting to be herded. They are geese who all form the formation and do whatever the leader of the geese tells them to do is the formation you know i do want to q finger signal <laughs> <laughs> i do want to say i don't think the courage of mike pence should be diminished uh you know some people say look he did what he was supposed to do that's absolutely true on the day of the insurrection he did what he was supposed to do and what it, it was his job but you know when you have thousands of people chanting for your death and breaking into a building and wanting to kill you and you go in that night and you do what you're supposed to do that does take courage and i think he walked a fine line in the days and weeks that followed um to try be a voice of reason to be a leader to be a statesman i think he accomplished it in the face of incredible pressure both leading up to and following it. And I don't think that should be diminished in any capacity. Someone could always do more, but I, you know, that doesn't mean it's possible. Fair point. Fair point. He deserves the credit that he got for his actions that day. He does. He deserves it. And the 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment, they deserve the credit that they get for that. And it is fair to say, this is another one of the revelations from the book and from the interview the Biden White House was pushing against witnesses. They were stymieing and stiff arming Jamie Raskin's efforts as well. They could have had Secret Service agents who witnessed what was going on behind the scenes that day come forward and testify. And we've learned a lot since then about Secret Service shenanigans around their deleted text messages. There's a lot that the Secret Service knew and they lied about it. And so, you know, I, 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 I take your point that it doesn't diminish the credit that is due 
But the fact still remains that there was a moment where we could have finished the job and ended our long national nightmare. And like Freddy Krueger and his finger knives, Donald Trump is coming back, baby. Speaking of which, that's a great segue to the end of the January 6th committee hearings, which ostensibly occurred last week, although they subpoenaed Donald Trump and he made all kinds of mouth noises about, oh, I'm going to come do this, which I, well, let me ask you this. What are the odds, Alicia Preston, that Donald Trump testifies before the January 6th commission? Equal to the he runs for president in 2024, which is zero. Wow, you're so wrong. Paul? <laughs> well, I, I, I totally- Sorry, was I not nuanced enough there? Yeah, I mean, I totally disagree about whether he's planning to run in 2024. I mean, he's he he's going to run from from with with an orange jumpsuit from behind bars. I mean, the guy, it's just he, he can't not. But anyway, putting putting that aside, uh, he is not going to testify. He is not going to cooperate. And the real question I have is. You know, there's really not going to be time, I think, to uh, to uh, hold him in contempt of Congress and then initiate a, another yet another um, DOJ uh, action against Trump for contempt of Congress. All this, by the way, against the backdrop of Steve Bannon, who uh, is being I think he's being sentenced as we speak. Um, the DOJ has asked for jail time for Bannon for continuing and flagrant contempt of Congress. Would that it were the great orange Cheeto in his matching orange jumpsuit in the chair of Bannon being sentenced today? I thought for a second there you were talking about sending Donald Trump to the chair, which you know, whatever, I'm going to leave that alone. But it does, you know, hearing Steve Bannon is getting sentenced, I feel like no ho Hank and Barry, it's like, oh, no, <laughs> that's terrible news. You know, I hope Steve Bannon does not get jail time because the DOJ is asking for six months. And I don't know what other federal inmates have done, but I don't think whatever it is, having to be housed with Steve Bannon is a fair punishment for their crimes. <laughs> you you would actually, you know what we, have the- we should do? You know what we should do? If you believe that tough jail sentences are a deterrent, forget sending people to prison. Just make them listen to Steve Bannon's podcast. Yeah, just make them listen to the podcast or Alex Jones or any one of those weirdos. And that that will be reformatory far more. Oh, than my prison. gosh. Hey, speaking of of the end of the January 6th series. All right. So we agree that probably this was a check the box exercise just to say they had done it. It's like, oh, we invited him. He just, you know, uh, the invitation got lost in the mail. He, he never showed up. Um, did the January 6th hearings, we did a curtain raiser when they started. And, you know, now now that they're at, at the end, did they accomplish anything? Paul, uh, did they let me put it to you. Did, did they? What did they accomplish? Well, look. I, I, I. First of all, as a legacy and as history, the hearings. Um, number one, uh, the witnesses were were, if I'm not mistaken, uniformly Republican witnesses, uh, or witnesses of the Republican persuasion, um, uh, none of whom renounced their party status um, on the stand. All of whom remained. Uh, Republicans for what that might be worth. Uh, But the testimony came from Republicans and it dotted I's, it crossed T's. It put together the story of what happened to January 6th and uh, who was involved in what and in, in what way and the centrality of Donald Trump 
in the January 6th in, insurrection. This, he is the key figure. Um, he is the, 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 you know, he is the evil emperor of that entire insurrection, as well as the conspiracy to overthrow uh, the government. That was made crystal clear. Um, now, as an investigation, investigatory committee, um, uh, Jamie Raskin told us uh, on a recent Beyond Politics episode that they really don't have statutory authority um, to make a, quote, criminal referral. Uh, but they do have piles of testimony and evidence which can be turned over to the DOJ um, for its investigation. And uh, I think that it, it, it got a the, the hearings got a pretty wide audience. So I'm certain that there are that there's a large percentage of the population who didn't care about the hearings, who bought the story that it was just uh, another put up witch hunt. But I'm betting that there are a number of persuadable Americans who heard what uh, came forward in this uh, in, in this series of hearings and who may have been persuaded uh, from a position that they otherwise held that, in fact, Donald Trump is guilty of a criminal conspiracy to overthrow the government that started before, before, before the election with a plan to renounce the results if he didn't get elected. And ultimately, um, uh, he was willing to see people die um, and do nothing about it uh, when he called the mob to sack the Capitol. Alicia, you're kind of in a weird position here where you didn't like the setup of the hearings, but at the same time, you have along the way, tell me if I'm getting any of this wrong, but you have fundamentally, you've always bought into, yeah, Donald Trump is to blame for doing lots of bad things here, and there's nothing to be proud of here on, on the Republican side. This this is a, a stone cold bummer for the party. Um, where do you come down at the end of it here? Did they accomplish anything? I don't think they accomplished anything directly. And your assessment of my opinion is correct. I don't like the theatrics, the political nature of the committee. Um, but I watched a lot of it, probably 80% of it as it went on. And yeah, there's testimony from Donald Trump allies. Donald Trump is at very best in part responsible for what happened on January 6th. Yeah. And it, it's hard to watch 20 seconds of those hearings and not come to that conclusion unless you are seeped with deep bias. That being said, the outcome of the January 6th committee is Democrats and anti-Trump folk think it's a slam dunk. Look, we showed you something. Uh, Trump supporting Republicans say it's a sham and they're not going to move. Neither side's going to move off that mark in any way. When I say it doesn't have a direct effect, I don't think it does, but I think it may be part of a bigger thing. And that's what the middle America, it's not the January 6th committee that is making people say, I'm just uncomfortable. It is, you know, the documents at Mar-a-Lago. It is a New York um, law, civil lawsuit. It is what happened on January 6th that is continuing to be brought up in the news because of the committee. So it almost is part of this cumulative effect that make, may make people just say, I'm kind of tired of the Trump era. You know, that's, that's, I agree with everything both of you just said. This is great. Well, I know, yeah, I know that in radio, we're supposed to like <laughs> argue with each other and do crossfire and, and dunk and own and pwn and I don't know, whatever the kids. Well, if we get to beef prices, we can do that. And you, I think we're both basically saying 
yeah, they had an impact, but it's probably not going to show up immediately because they were polarizing. Because if you're in the Trump camp, you're still in the Trump camp. We didn't persuade those people. And we may not persuade people in this election. And that was really my point. There was an op-ed in the New York Times this past week. And their argument was, look, uh, the Monmouth University poll that has kind of tracked Americans' feelings on this, they did a poll in late June that showed that 65% of Americans remember January 6th as a riot. It wasn't a riot, okay? It wasn't a riot. It was an insurrection. And that number had become 64% a month later when the hearings for the summer ended. 29% thought Joe Biden had been fraudulently elected before the hearings and 29% thought so after. So the big lie didn't get changed. The perception that, oh, this was just, you know, boys will be boys, normal tourist visit hadn't really changed. I'm not surprised by that because the people who felt that way were not going to be persuaded. I think Paul is right. And I think you're right, Alicia. There. This was never about, and I think this takes us full circle to what we said on this panel at the kickoff to the hearings. This was never about and should not have been about giving a partisan advantage in this election or changing the contours of the midterms. This was about history. This was about precedent. And hopefully, if Alicia is wrong and Donald Trump does run again, this is about setting up a record and persuading people in the long term to stave off the biggest threat to the continuance of American democracy since the Civil War. That is the end of my spiel on that. Let's move on. I was going to maybe get into the revelations about Marjorie Taylor Greene's texts. Let's just let's just summarize them. They're Looney Tunes. They're Looney Tunes. She's as she's nuttier than squirrel poo. Um, OK, he makes a fruitcake sound tasty. I have never had a good I've never oh. had a good fruitcake. There you are again with eating members of Congress. Alicia, it's time to talk about your cannibal tendencies. Um, and I know you just you want to take us back to beef because to you it's like where's the beef? What did you say? Yeah, where's the beef? It's like, well, not on my your, dinner table. Call your house member. Um, you know, Alicia, you made a, an impassioned plea shall we put it, last week on this show to your fellow Republicans. Just talk about inflation, please. Pretty please, people. Don't talk about anything else. It'll win. I promise you that's what you're saying to all of your campaign clients. And, uh, you know, maybe that's working because there's been a definite vibe shift back toward Republicans in the last week or so. It started with a little bit of an assessment from Nate Cohn in the New York Times two weeks ago, followed by Nate Silver in 538, the, the Battle of the Nates. And then that there was sort of a domino effect and we saw other analysts kind of come in. Harry Enten at CNN wrote a piece this week saying, well, we can't dismiss the possibility that actually there's going to be a real red wave here. And Amy Walter at the Cook Political Report saying she was the one who wrote the vibe shift article a few months ago that we all started talking about, like, hey, things are turning around for Democrats. She said, well, you know, it's it's also not not great for Democrats these days either. So let's just start there. Paul, I'll, I'll start with you. You've obviously been steeped in all of this analysis reporting. You watch the polls as avidly as anyone else. Are you picking up a vibe shift? And if so, to what do you attribute it? Is this is this a real thing? Uh, 
as one would expect, uh, as we head toward what are probably going to be the closest midterms in at least recent memory, as we battle between freedom and fascism with a number of Americans apparently preferring an autocratic fascist system to democracy. They prefer guns to votes. But putting that aside, uh, it was always going to be a slowing of the momentum that Democrats have been enjoying in the fall. Um, you knew that you were going to get this slow slowdown in momentum as things got tighter because all the news in the spring was Republicans romp, and then we changed to Democrats surge, uh, and now we're back to, well, it's going to be really close. So it probably lands back where we all thought it would originally land, hoping that Democrats were going to do a little better than falling um, falling off their surfboards in a tsunami uh, and maybe minimizing losses in the House. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, because the Republicans are all so Looney Tunes, maybe keeping the Senate. Alicia, is this real? Is, is something real going on here? And to what do you attribute it? Well, I think, you know, I think momentum right now is on the Republican side. Um, I've never bought into you know, talking about a red wave or a blue wave because, you know, polls are out that say, you know, favorability of Congress is with the Republicans or Democrats or generic ballots. They mean absolutely nothing because every district in this country votes for itself. Uh, so what you have to look at are where are the swing states and what are they talking about and who are their candidates? I maintain talk about inflation, talk about electricity, talk about energy prices. Here's the reality. When you feel like crap, you vote the bums out. Let's remind people that we all kind of feel like crap right now because we do for various reasons in this country. And then they'll vote the bums out. And that's only matters in swing districts. And it matters in places where independents uh, exist at large numbers. And I think the momentum is on the Republican side, not just because inflation is so bad, but because Democrats aren't talking about it. They're telling me as a woman uh, of, you know, of a parental age that all I care about is my reproductive system. And I think that's insulting to think that I'm not a little more intellectual to care about something beyond one issue. Well, you know, I think I, I kind of agree. We rib you a lot on this show about your being so relentlessly on message, but there's a reason that you're so relentlessly on message. First of all, because you're you're kind of sending up the bat signal to fellow Republicans, like please talk about inflation, you know. But also because it really does matter, and we've talked a lot on this show about the fact that there's really a battle to control the issue environment. And what we what we've seen is what Paul was alluding to in, a moment ago in the spring, the story was all about inflation. And lo and behold, it was it showed up in polls. Number one issue on voters minds. And Alicia is right. When you're bummed out, then you get you don't get a kind of a nuanced set of feedback to give to your leaders where you say, well, I don't blame you fully for this. So I'd like to penalize you a little bit, but not entirely. You get a binary choice. You vote yes or no. You vote R or D, or in some cases, you know, something crazy. Um, and so you get this binary way to express how you feel. If you're feeling negative, then you're going to tend to vote the bums out, which is why Alicia is so relentlessly on message, because Republicans are incentivized. I don't blame you for this. Republicans are incentivized in this election cycle to say, don't you feel awful about everything? And Alicia, I believe you. It may be true, 
you may seriously be worried about the amount of beef or congressman that you can afford to eat, but you genuinely also are, are also just kind of putting out the vibe that Republicans are putting out. Things are terrible. This is why you've seen so much Republican messaging on inflation and crime, to some extent immigration. They want this feeling that things are bad. They're spiraling out of control. Don't you feel bad? It's a very, very simple and effective campaign message. And I mean, to answer my own question, I do think that this is a little real. I also think it's a little bit to be expected because you do tend to see post-Labor Day, a couple of things happen. First of all, pollsters move from looking at polls of all registered voters to a likely voter model. What that means is they apply some of their secret sauce about who they think is going to show up. And it's a more restrictive pool of who they expect is going to be part of the electorate. And that more restrictive pool tends to include people who are highly motivated voters, i.e. the the ones who are more partisan, feel more extreme. And so registered voter polls, by and large, tend to favor Democrats. Likely voter polls, by and large, tend to favor Republicans, especially in midterms, which are lower turnout, where you have the most motivated voters showing up. So I always expected some tightening in the polls. You also tend to see a they're going to come home effect. Oh, Alicia, go. You, you want to jump in on that? Well, I was just going to say, you know, we talk about and, you know, talk about inflation, talk about these prices, talk about that. What we're forgetting is this isn't just Republicans talking about that on airwaves or on social media. We're talking about what's happening in people's individual households anecdotally. Now, we've got a teenager who gave us an entire, basically a printed slideshow of why her allowance has to go up. And she's a very smart, clever 18-year-old, and she's got a daddy who doesn't know how to say no to her. But that was a real thing. Now, maybe it was because she saw stuff and so She's like, everything's so expensive. I like to go to TGI Fridays on Fridays. Everything's more expensive. I got to convince them to give me more money. Now, A, it was effective. But B, that's a funny anecdote, but that just shows how it is actually everywhere. The discussion is everywhere, from the serious stuff like energy bills to the little simple things like the kid needing an increase in her allowance because of inflation. So, so listen, I was, I was, I, I went to buy some groceries at Hannaford's. I do a lot of the shopping in my household. I'm a sensitive new age guy. I do the cooking. I clean up. I do the shopping. It, it's, it's a real chore, but I also do the vacuuming by the way, but that, that only, you know, I need that, Chris to call you you've got to talk to him. I, I, <laughs> I, I don't recommend any of this, by the way, I, I'd rather be, I'd rather be, you know, you, served. you fouled up strategically. The thing is I quotes, you've I, been married I, I, for like what, 40 years. You yeah, should have screwed up on all of those chores. I, I know, at the beginning. It a terrible mistake. But anyway, I was in the Hannaford's yesterday, and I was uh, buying some groceries. And ahead of me, there was a um, a, a a a woman of uh, senior status, uncertain age, checking out her groceries. And as she checked out, uh, because she's on the rewards program, she turned to me proudly and said, "I just saved a dollar twenty-five. And uh, I said, "Yeah, you know, things are thing. It's really tough out here. Things are things are expensive." She said, "You know, uh, we've got to we we got to take our 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 our." our pleasure where we can find it. Uh, every, every penny, every penny counts. She said, you know, yeah, things have gotten more expensive. And 
you know, she basically said all, all the politicians are all blaming uh, this and that about it. But it's really there's so many things that contribute to this. Um, it it it's not really a political it's not really a political issue. She said there's COVID, there's this war, um, things are more expensive, and uh, you just don't you, you know there are a lot of different reasons for all this. You just got to live through it. Well, that's what, the, but that's the point that encapsulates it perfectly is. This is about what is most on voters' minds. And we just got some, some, some polling about this from CBS News, from their battleground tracker, is a poll taken between October 12th and October 15th. And the contrast is in September, in your vote for Congress, do you think that abortion is very important? 59% in September, now down five points to 54%. So, and, and what you see in polling is people who are back to saying inflation, very important, rising. So again, it comes down to my answer to my own question is some of this we could always expect, right? Voters mm -hmm. tend to come home to their to their part to their home base party as they head down the stretch because they're subjected to a ton of negative advertising and that polarizes them, sends them back to home camp. They they lose their their uncertainty about whether they might play footsie with the other side. And there's this move from registered voters to likely voters. So some of the tightening, I think, is to be expected. And some of it is, yes, the issue environment has definitely shifted. And there is a little bit of a momentum swing back to Republicans. The final thing I'll say, just to Alicia, your earlier point is, yes, these are all individual House races, but they also tend to be correlated when you look at the toss-ups. And right now, there are 23 more Democratic-held seats than Republican-held seats that are in the toss-up or leaning category, if you look at the Cook political report. So these are the closest House races out there. 23 more of them are held by Democrats, which means Republicans are playing on Democrats' turf. That's a huge advantage for Republicans. And what you tend to find is that at the very end, in most elections, those will tilt one way or the other, and that tends to be correlated. So it's on the board right now that you could still have a significant Republican victory. And it's just it's just hard to tell. It's going to be hard to tell, closely watched in the next two weeks. Hey, uh, Alicia, I promised you earlier that you would get to riff on uh, inflation a little bit. I, I saw this really interesting item uh, in the New York Times this week that Democrats are not talking about their major economic accomplishments, which are real. I think we all agree that they are extremely real because they're afraid to get engaged in inflation. Raphael Warnock, who ran won his, his runoff race two years ago on the basis of campaigning on helping people with pandemic payments. He won on that issue. That happened. Voters credited Democrats for that. He doesn't talk about it at all because right now, Democrats don't want to talk about the economy because that is a negative connotation because of inflation. So I, let me ask you, are, Celinda Lake, the Republican, the, the Democratic pollster, thinks that Democrats are making a tactical mistake, not engaging, not telling the story on inflation. Which is it? Is it that Democrats are better served to do what you just criticized a moment ago and just talk about uteruses? Or are they better served to actually get into it and say, all right, you want to talk about inflation? We have a story to tell on what we've done on the economy and inflation, and we're going to get into it. 
not that I love to give Democrats advice, but, you know, I think they have to walk a line. It would be a little silly, even if let's say I agree with the premise that Democrats did these fantastic things in the economy, which I don't. But let's say I agree with that premise. If they're out there talking about how great they did with the economy when we're dealing with massive inflation, gas increases, energy increases, electrical bills, um, it's going to sound so out of touch. It's going to sound ridiculous because it doesn't matter what you did when that accomplished what I'm dealing with what I'm dealing with right now. So I don't think they should talk about that. I do think they should address inflation. And here's why I keep hearing there's nothing the federal government can do. There's nothing the federal government can do. You want to know what Democrats in Congress can do? Empathize. Let me know that you appreciate that this is a problem. Let me know that you see it as a problem. And we're not getting that. They're ignoring it. They're ignoring the biggest thing facing American families right now because they don't know how to talk about it. Okay, if you can't put a a solution on a silver platter or a tin platter in this economy for me, then at least tell me you care and tell me how. That's what what we should be doing. When we create the spinoff podcast, we're going to call it Alicia Preston is on message that I, it's, it's going to be spectacular. We're doing this. It's happening. It's I'm trademarking it up, uh, Paul. So there, here's some numbers for you. Republicans have spent because they're taking Alicia's advice, whatever, whatever it seems. They've spent about one hundred fifty million dollars on inflation themed TV ads across the country in this election cycle. And Democrats have aired about 50 million, about a third of that, of their own ads that mention inflation in some way. But it's way down the list. Um, They've spent 95 million on ads that mention abortion rights and 27 million on ads mentioning infrastructure, which is at least an economic issue, but that's sort of their comeback. Is each party doing the right allocation of messaging here? Uh, The Republicans are doing the right allocation of messaging. Um, They are hammering away, uh, per Alicia Preston's advice, to the top dogs at the Republicans. They are hammering away on inflation. Uh, They are hammering away at making people feel bad about America. That's, that's, That's the Republican playbook. Feel bad, people. Everything is terrible. We are headed for doom and disaster. Uh, The evil Democrats don't care about you um, and the fact that you can no longer afford hamburger. Um, The the Democrats are reading from the playbook that says, don't acknowledge any of the issues. Uh, Let's just talk about the issues that will uh, excite our base and uh, say they're taking away our freedom. I'm... Alicia, I think, has a has a pretty good and strategic point uh, for Democrats that would be an an interesting contemplation, which is how do you acknowledge that there's still work to be done, that uh, people need help and we're working on it and we've accomplished an awful lot? And does that sound too mealy mouthed? And is that show weakness. Um, And if that shows weakness, well, then we don't want to talk about it. On the other hand, if what it means is people sense, well, the Democrats are trying and they have done some good things. Maybe there are, you know, a 0.05% of persuadables who might make the difference and for whom that kind of empathetic political um, uh, communication works. I frankly, I haven't seen any studies. I haven't really even had any discussions um, uh, with strategists except 
Alicia and Matt about whether the empathetic approach to political communication um, matters. I mean, I suppose Democrats could say, yeah, you know, we're working on it. We Gas prices are down, but food prices are still too high. But meanwhile, by the way, the fascists are taking want to take away your freedoms. Uh, they want to sack your capitals. Uh, they don't care if they lose elections. They want to take it, uh, take it using AK-47s. So, um, oh, yeah, we're working on that stuff. But really, what we got to worry about is they want to they, they want small government just small enough to fit up uh, your uterus, and they want to use guns uh, to take away your vote. You know, I, I think the the problem is Alicia's probably right that you have to show some empathy. It's sort of the table stakes for being admitted into the minds of voters to show that you get it to some degree. But at the end of the day, we've talked about this on the show before. The political incentives are such that. The best use of your dollar on the margin is going to be to attack the other side and say they're terrible, they're unacceptable. You want to disqualify them in the minds of voters because ultimately you've got it. When people are unhappy, you've got to get them to go through the calculus that Alicia just described in their minds and have them make a choice, not turn it into a referendum. I know this is trite to say you can't have it be the kind of the knee jerk response of I am unhappy, therefore these people are in power, I'm going to vote the bums out. You have to say, I am unhappy, I'm going to blame you. And you have to give them a reason to make that choice be Republicans, if you're if you're Democrats. And that's what you see. That's what you see on the airwaves is something much more akin to the second part of what you just said, Paul. And it drives people like me with some training and background in economics kind of crazy because the economic reality is that the current inflation truly is not the fault of the president. It isn't. That's just economic fact. That's what Mark Zandi said on this show. That's that's just reality. But I get that that does not matter. It does not matter. It's all about perception. And that takes me over, Alicia, to an item that you brought to my attention, which is there are a couple of economists. There are a couple of economists from Bloomberg who now say that there is a 100% <laughs> probability of a recession happening over the next 12 months. Would you like to comment on this? I know you want to because it's in your political interest to say that everything is awful and that we're going to have to be eating our congressmen soon. Go ahead, Alicia. I love Talk that it's it. my messaging that's every, that everything is awful as opposed to the fact that everything economically is awful for families in America. You're like the Lego movie. Everything is awful. Okay, go on, please. When you're um, you know, here's the reality when you hear 100% inflation, and I don't say this condescendingly to listeners because I'm in this boat. Most of us don't know exactly what recession means. That is a word that does come from eggheaded economists like yourself, Matt. Um, but what but we know is it's is, not- is just a giant blob. It's, it's gigantic. <laughs> it's not really oval though, but go on. Uh, it is, what we do know is this, is that it's not good. We know that interest rates are probably going to raise, which means if you want to buy a house, it's going to cost you more money. We know that it is bad for the country, for families and, and for our economy. And so when you hear something like 100 percent chance of recession, we're going to go, well, that's not good. I, you know, I'm not sure how that's going to affect me at all on a day to day basis, but I know it's going to and not in a good way. Uh, Paul, we're, we're about to have to wrap up here. I know there was another item we wanted to get to, which was the shenanigans during the Trump White House playing politics with the CDC. We'll have to do that next week. But would you like to weigh in? Would you like to counter any of the doom saying from Cassandra on the panel here? 
you know, um, mortgage rates are at 7%. Um, when I uh, first uh, looked at buying a house, uh, mortgage rates were at 16 or 17%. So, you know, folks, uh, take it all in perspective. Things are going to get better. The war in Ukraine will be over. COVID at some point will be behind us. Democrats are working on it. Vote Democratic. Uh, just you need Democrats or else uh, fascists will take over. It's freedom versus fascism. Freedom should win. Alicia Preston's message, and she is on message, trademark Matt Robeson, is everything is awful. Paul Hode's message is everything is awesome. And my message to you, and I think the tagline for Beyond Politics and the Balance of Power Roundtable is more cannibalism jokes per hour than any other podcast out there. I promise you, Paul's right. Things are not as bad as that would make it seem. For Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt. We'll see you next time.